0: Welcome to Places, Everyone, a conversation about the balance of art and business. I'm Lonnie Firestone. In this episode, I want to explore physicality and how it shapes an actor's work. Noah Robbins can speak to that. He was a child dancer who had a knack for hip-hop, which led to dance performances at the Kennedy Center, led by choreographer Debbie Allen. His work in professional dance spiraled toward acting when he landed the lead role in the Broadway revival of Neil Simon's play Brighton Beach Memoirs. At age 18, he was suddenly a working actor, with several years of dance under his belt, but no acting experience, aside from his high school musical. Brighton Beach Memoirs was formative for Noah, and though it had a very short run on Broadway, it put Noah's acting career on an upward trajectory. Thanks to his youthful appearance, he found opportunities playing a range of ages, from teenage to adult. And like Brighton Beach Memoirs, in which he played an adolescent version of Neil Simon himself— his subsequent roles have included two other portraits of artists as young men. Throughout these roles in theater and on television, Noah's dance experience has been useful, allowing him to channel the physicality needed to clarify his character's movement, demeanor, and style. In other words, dance has made Noah a better actor. In his most prominent role on the Amazon series Forever, starring Maya Rudolph and Fred Armisen, Noah has a scene in which he has to dance badly, But don't be fooled, he's acting. So how does dance inform the physicality of an actor? That's today's episode. But first, something interesting from the intersection of art and finance. Rapper Jay-Z has become the first hip-hop artist to reach billionaire status. He joins a small circle of recording artists who have reached that level of financial success. But no performer becomes a billionaire on music alone. Jay-Z's fortune is based on his ability to create branding opportunities, including his clothing line Rocawear, which he sold in 2007, a liquor brand he co-owns with Bacardi, and Tidal, his music streaming platform. The crossover from music to branding is more commonplace these days. Kanye has a clothing line, Diddy, a marketing guru, has Ciroc vodka. It seems like hip-hop goes hand-in-hand with products and branding, And it's especially meaningful for artists like Jay-Z who grew up in poverty to devote so many of their songs to expressing what it's like to be wealthy. As one of his lyrics states, Put me anywhere on God's green earth, I'll triple my worth. And now, here's my interview with Noah Robbins. Hi, Noah. Hi. Thank you for joining me. I'm happy to. <laughs> Several years back, I saw you perform in a play at the Public Theater called The 27th Man, Yeah. which was written by fiction writer Nathan Englander. Your performance was so good that oh, when I saw you on the subway platform after the show, I did the very not cool New York thing <laughs> and went over to talk to you about it.
1: Yeah. I would say that's a cool thing, but yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, But you were so nice and over the years I've kept an eye out on your work and uh, especially as you branched out across theater and television. Mm -hmm. Um, What kinds of roles have you been drawn to since you got started professionally about a decade ago?
1: You know, the short answer is uh, the roles I've been drawn to are the ones that I've gotten Uh, and then the roles that I haven't been drawn to are the ones that I didn't get. There's a kind of lucky aspect to any career where you know you're you're hoping to do things that you love that are fulfilling that are that are challenging and hopefully that are that are good but you're also just at the mercy of whatever uh, is available to you and whatever you're lucky enough to um book so um you know I I've been very lucky that the things that I happen to have gotten are also things that have been very fulfilling and very challenging uh and so that's kind of what I've been trying to do and so far what I've been lucky enough to just sort of stumble upon through through sheer coincidence.
0: As a starting point into that, maybe, I think that you and the actress Celia Keenan-Bolger have oh something God. in common, that's which nice. is great acting. Thank God. I'm but- <laughs> glad
1: that's the first thing you said. If you've been like, you're both small and, uh, you know, have blue eyes or something.
0: Well, I was going to say... A tendency to play teenagers.
1: Yes, sure, sure.
0: Um, so she's right now in To Kill a Mockingbird yeah. playing Scout. Do you feel an easy access point in playing someone years younger than you? <sighs>
1: um, the truth is, um, I, I don't. I don't think I have any, like, real insight into, like, teenagers. I think part of it is just that I look really young. So there's just kind of a... A physical believability that I have that I guess the average twenty-eight-year-old male probably would not have, but uh, I, I'm also I also think that the kinds of teenagers I often play are the kinds who have personalities that are are somewhat wiser than their years a little bit, so it it kind of allows me to. To not have to, you know, play act and sort of play at being a, a younger person mm. because that can that can become sort of um, that can be very unconvincing sometimes. So i I've I think I've gotten to play characters that you know that capitalize on my youthful appearance, but still allow me to sort of be something of an adult in terms of the actual acting of it.
0: Yeah, that's actually a great foray into your character on Forever. Yeah, um, yeah the new literally. Amazon show yeah. because you simultaneously are 17 and 58. Right. Without spoiling too much about yeah. what the show's about. We
1: can. I mean, it's been out long enough that, I mean, if you wanted to spoil it. Okay, I so would. say it. Okay. So I am uh, a ghost, basically. And uh, because I died when I was 17, I've stayed that same age for, you know, ever since I've become a ghost. So I look like a 17 year old, but I've been dead for a really long time. So it's as though I'm an old man in the body of a you know, snarky, 1970s skateboarder, 17-year-old.
0: And you're playing opposite actors who are also characters in their 40s and 50s. Um, so everyone around you who you're close with is right. in that middle-age range, and you are that in mind.
1: Right, yeah. Um, but
0: not physically. Right, yeah. So how are you balancing the um, demeanor of a teenager who's a little snarky with a kind of a maturity, especially because you've been in that ghost world that they call Riverside in the show longer than any of the other characters.
1: Right. I mean, so much of it was just, as a cliche answer, but so much of it was just in the writing already that uh, he's written in such a, like, I could just hear his voice. It felt like he was the kind of kid that just, his whole kind of shtick with his, you know, best friend who's played by Fred Armisen in the show um, is that he's like constantly making fun of him and constantly ribbing him about things so I could I could afford to sort of be in my like older person body like I, I didn't have to sort of play at him being like young because he was always so kind of in charge of the scene and sort of high status and and um just confident in his in his being it was it was pretty kind of instinctual the way that it all unfolded and and the costume was really helpful, and you know I just like he's just like a He's just that kind of kid that I could just picture in my mind. I'm like, oh, I know who that guy is.
0: Also, he maintains all the insecurities of adolescence. Right. But he's the most knowledgeable person about where to go and how to get things done in this afterlife.
1: Totally. It's a really... It was like, it's probably the most fun role I've gotten, certainly on on camera. It was just like, it's the kind of role that could only exist in a TV show. You're like, well, who's the character? Like, what kind of person is he? Oh, he's a ghost who's like 58 and 70. It's like, (laughs) it makes no sense. And it it was like, really allowed me to just like draw on things that were purely imaginative and didn't exist in the real world, which is really fun.
0: Yeah. I think one thing that is in common between Mark on Forever And some of the other recurring roles you've played on TV is a kind of discomfort in connecting with people. Oh,
1: yeah. (laughs) Uh oh, I wonder what that says about me. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So I've seen that to be true of your character Zach on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Yeah. And your character Bryce on the show Younger. Yeah. So these are all very different guys. And Mm -hmm. even though two are self admittedly on the spectrum. Right. They have very different ways of talking to people, and some are, like, good-natured, and some are less so. Yeah. Um, But they each have a hard time feeling close to others. Yeah. And you don't come across that way as a human.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank (laughs) God. Yeah.
0: What are the the physical elements, though, of embodying a a character who is emotionally reserved? (sighs) Like, withholding yourself um, physically as... As, as a way to emphasize a, a mental or emotional yeah. um, reserved state?
1: That is a really good question. I know with my character on Kimi Schmidt, it's a more kind of heightened cartoonish show. So I felt like there was more room to sort of do something like boldly physical. So I just remember like every time we would do a take uh, and it, they'd say, cut. My body was like really tired all of a sudden and I was like, why am I like so tired? And I realized like every muscle in my body was so tense from just being uncomfortable talking to whoever I was talking to in the scene, it was usually Ellie Kemper who plays Kimmy.
0: In Kimmy Schmidt, when Zach is possibly dancing but possibly having a panic attack, <laughs> yeah. he or you does the exact same shutter-like dance move yeah. that you do as Eugene in Grease Live. Oh my
1: God. That is unbelievable research. I don't even know that I was aware of that. Yes, you are correct. Uh, I used to dance for a long time as a kid. I know so, we're gonna get to that. Oh boy. Um, so that's like probably a move that I a move. It looks it looks like a just a full body spasm. Uh, no one would ever think that that was dancing if they ever saw me doing it at a party, which quite a few people have. But. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think that they that the Kimmy Schmidt writers saw me uh, doing that in a different, in yet a different thing that I did that in. Um, and they decided to write it in because they found it funny. So, yeah, it's, it's I guess, just, uh, uh, again, you know, on, on, my, on my special skills, on my resume, it says <laughs> can do a full body. Miscellaneous. Yeah, yeah, miscellaneous. Ask him to, you know, tremble for you, he <laughs> will.
0: Well, I think a lot about physicality with your acting because I've read that you at, at one point wanted to be a dancer yeah. um, and that you even perform with dancer choreographer Debbie Allen yeah. at the Kennedy Center, um, which is really interesting and, and amazing. How much did you pursue dancing professionally as a child? And, and, and as you evolved into acting, how much did that knowledge and that kind of ease of movement inform what you were doing?
1: Yeah. I, I, so I started doing these shows at the Kennedy Center when I was 11, and Debbie Allen would sort of every year or so take like a famous fairy tale and, and sort of update it and the cast would be largely children like ages anywhere from like seven to like 16 or 17. Um, and so starting when I was 11 I started doing these shows and I would do it again when I was 12 and 14 and 16 and 17. And um, and yeah they were I mean I I had to act in them as well uh to varying degrees but I I think at that time I was just really mostly just into dancing and I I hesitate to say that I'm a dancer because that would suggest that I could do more than one kind of dance which I couldn't do and still can't. I could do hip hop fairly well. And um, I did tap as well, but I wasn't as good at that as, as hip hop. And I was—I there was an amazing dance studio. I don't think it exists anymore in DC that I would like take classes in for a few years. And I got to know Debbie Allen and, and I, I ended up doing shows with her for like the next several years. Just, yeah. So That's it was,
0: amazing. Yeah. It
1: was a really crazy coincidence. And then through one of those shows, I got an agent and then the first... Play that I auditioned for with that agent was Brighton Beach Memoirs, and and it was, so it was like truly cosmic good luck and and bizarre coincidence that I'm that I'm here right now.
0: Well, actually, Mark has a dance scene. Yes, that's bad. Yeah, and I can say that because I've seen videos of you dancing <laughs> online that are fantastic. Oh, thank you. But it seems fitting that Mark would not be coordinated. Yes,
1: yes. Which um, it's surprisingly f- uh, fun to dance badly. I think it's like really uh freeing. It's like yeah, you don't have to be good. It's, I I enjoyed doing that scene.
0: Yeah, and also it was a scene that showed a rare moment of genuine sincerity from yeah. a character who likes to have a very sort of like disaffected facade.
1: Totally. Yeah. No, that was that was definitely my favorite scene to shoot and I think it was the last scene that I did shoot or maybe the second to last. So that that was a great sort of farewell scene.
0: So in talking to you about physicality and how it shapes your work, uh, I really want to draw attention to a play you did this past winter called Clarkson yeah. by Samuel D. Hunter, um, in which you, pay, you played a character named Jake who has Huntington's disease, yeah. um, which involves an atrophying of the body and uncontrollable muscle spasms. Yeah. Knowing the dance experience that you've had and the ability to to use your body effectively, um, in acting, how did you go about training for a role in which you have seemingly involuntary bodily movements?
1: Yeah, I uh, that we we had a person come in during rehearsal who has works with a, a lot of people with Huntington's, specifically pe- young people with Huntington's, which. Mm-hmm. Um, Huntington's is like like the worst possible thing that can happen to your body. It's it's like every, every part of your body begins to sort of betray you, and then you eventually lose complete control of your body, and then your mind. I mean, it's it's just like every horrible thing that could possibly happen uh, happens. Fortunately, in the the play, I didn't feel the the character is not written in such a way where he is. At the later In the later stages of, of Huntington's, he's very much at the beginning. Uh, so he has like full facility of his mind and he largely has, you know, he's able to go about his day in a way where you would never suspect that anything was the matter. But he occasionally has these muscle spasms or sudden movements that cause him to drop objects for no apparent reason or to trip and fall for no apparent reason. And so there were these moments throughout the play that Sam, or the playwright, just specifically put in that were moments of, of you know, something going wrong physically. And so I, I didn't have to worry about it a huge amount except for those specific moments. And, mm-hmm. and when it happened, it was always tricky because it's really hard to do something with your body while pretending that you mm-hmm. uh, didn't do it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, there's a moment in the beginning of the play where I'm on I'm on my cell phone and I'm pacing and um i'm I'm like in a moment of anger i'm I'm walking and I'm suddenly my my leg sort of gives out and I almost trip and fall and then I sort of pause and I breathe and I like sort of you know rub my leg a little bit and I continue and it's and I and, and you know that and it's over and that was like one of the hardest parts of the entire play to like pretend to, to do that, I always felt like I was doing a terrible job. I was like, oh, that was the worst acting ever. It looked like I tripped and it mm-hmm. looked like I made it happen. And now I'm pretending like I didn't like, I, it just felt like I wanted to cringe every time I did it. Uh, and I also felt like I, you know, it was something that I obviously wanted to get right because this is a real thing that people have. And so, yeah, I, I just, it just, it, I think it had to do with getting very specific about what i was doing to the point where i the more the more sort of planned out and choreographed it was in my mind the the more i could the more I felt like I could make it look unchoreographed, it was like a mm-hmm. weird paradox. I was like, I really have to. No, that makes it.
0: total sense. Yeah, it's sort of like I've heard when actors play a character who's drunk. Yeah. They need to be more in control of their limbs, not less.
1: Yeah. Even yes. though it
0: comes across as less.
1: Totally. Yeah. So I think I think that's what I learned from doing it. Uh-huh.
0: So, the script specifically states that he is thin. Yeah. And. He and his coworker, Chris, who work together at Costco, are stocking shelves with some light objects and some heavier objects. And the manual labor is of, like, very different degrees of difficulty for Jake versus Chris, who's sort of more of a built guy, I guess. Um, Well,
1: I mean, like, (laughs) I would say we're built in different ways, but sure. Absolutely.
0: Sure. Uh, And so Jake has kind of started to hate his body because of this new diagnosis. Yeah. But at the same time, as a young gay man, he's more comfortable with himself than Chris, who is not fully out. Yeah. So it seems like the role from every possible angle has demanded a lot of you in terms of what you're comfortable with physically. Yeah. How much of all of that was new? Was that your first time being a gay character on stage Um, or on screen?
1: No. I had done it once before, um, like... A long time ago, like nine years ago, I did this play called Secrets of the Trade uh, that Jonathan Tolans wrote. And so I, and I played a gay character who aged from 16 to 26, so that was kind of its own physical mm-hmm. change. But in terms of, I, like, I didn't play it any different from me in terms of, like, his his level of physical comfort being a, a gay person in the world. But in, in Clarkson, I was definitely aware of, oh, there needs to be a contrast between Jake and Chris in terms of uh, how they carry themselves in the world and, and whether or not... They would feel in danger being, uh, or or aware of not wanting to be seen as gay. I mean, in the play, the way that you find out I'm gay is that I'm just sort of casually telling Chris that I just broke up with a guy, and then mm-hmm. I see that he's uncomfortable, and I go, "Oh, I'm sorry if that made you uncomfortable." So there's like already, a, you know, a kind. There's just a difference in how they approach it. Yeah. So there was definitely like things that I did to, to make it clear physically that Jake is a, is comfortable with who he is in a way mm-hmm. that Chris is not. And I should also point out that the actor playing Chris is this guy, Edmund Donovan, who's incredible and was doing so much physically on his end to make it clear that he, that Chris was so uncomfortable in his body. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I think that that contrast was was hopefully clear.
0: So two years ago or so, you starred in Athol Fugard's play Master Harold and the Boys, yeah. um, which is set during apartheid in South Africa and in which you played a young version of the writer himself who lived and wrote during that time. Um, I just wanted to read uh, a line from the New York Times review about you.
1: I should leave now (laughs) and then come back when you're done.
0: That's pretty positive. Okay,
1: good. No, then all the more reason for me to leave, (laughs) or else I'll get arrogant.
0: Okay, here goes. His performance brings out all the nuances in the character. His innate good nature, his natural intelligence his submerged guilt and sorrow, and the hints of patronization that creep into his conversation. So this is your performance of a young Ethel yeah. in this play. I'm curious what it was like to embody this writer yeah, with all that youthful complexity while he is in the rehearsal room directing you.
1: It was really an unbelievably special experience uh, for so many reasons, but... Um, Fundamentally, working with Athel was just so um meaningful uh and he he was kind of bewilderingly hands off about hmm. um the fact that this was truly his life, and I was playing him and the other two actors were playing people that really existed in athel's life and To the point where, you know, there were moments where I almost wanted to say, like, you know, just tell me, just tell me what what you did. Like, tell me what you, I should do. Mm Because I know you know. And he would say things that were just, that just showed how much respect he had for actors and how much freedom he gave to them. I mean, he, um, he would sometimes say things like, you know, you know, at this point in the process, you know the character better than I do.
0: Hmm.
1: And I would be like... I can't believe he just said that because this is literally him. But I think he actually believed that. I think he actually felt like when I write a play and I give it to actors, um, I you know I will direct them, I will help them, but um, it's it's their it's their show.
0: Can you say a little bit about the story itself?
1: Yeah, the story is um, I play uh, a young, I guess like seventeen year old named uh, Hallie, uh, and Athel's real first name is Harold, but he went by Hallie as a child um and i am a white south african boy uh and my parents own a uh tea room in south africa and two of the, the the men that work there are um black south africans older black men south Af- male south africans and one of those two men is something of a surrogate father to me um and and also strangely something of a like big brother and a best friend. I mean, it's a really c- sort of interesting relationship between these 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 two guys. Um, and it, oh, and it's just the three of us in an afternoon in the tea room over the course of an hour and a half. I think the play is, and um, we talk about a lot of things. We have a lot of laughs, and then over the course of the play, you see the kind of um, the the fractures in their relationship that are the result of the racially toxic environment that they live in. And specifically Hallie has a a really sort of vicious meltdown where he says, um, horrible things to Sam that, uh, that are sort of un, un, impossible to take back. Uh, and, and so the play sort of begins in a very entertaining, fun, uplifting way. And it, and it just sort of you know the relationship crumbles by the end, or it doesn't crumble, but 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 the the you, the audience is sort of felt like feels like they just got punched in the gut after mm-hmm. watching this play. If we did our jobs well, uh, Hath- Athol would always say this play works best if we give the audience an amazing time for the first hour. Hmm. Or and fifteen minutes and then we just ruin their lives for the last fifteen minutes. That's like that's the best version of this play, is if is if we can achieve both extremes within the span of, you know, an hour and a half.
0: But I mean Halley does carry this kind of entitled sort of condescending tone. Yeah. Even from early on. Oh, definitely. I think definitely, there's definitely. certain threads that he feels like he's better, smarter, loftier. Yeah. From His entrance. Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think he fancies himself, like, very enlightened and very sort of not subject to the horrible environment that he lives in. But, of of course, the truth is that he makes, you know, um, remarks that are totally racist that he does not realize are, you know, what he's saying in the moment. And, um, you know, an audience watching it today or whenever they're watching it would certainly see things about Hallie that Hallie would... uh, N- n- you know would not be aware of himself um mm-hmm. but yeah, so there you you certainly see this sort of the seedlings of 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 the way that he's sort of ingested the 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 toxicity of the world around him and um and then it all comes pouring out in the end and you, yeah and um
0: yeah one was- one moment that I really love is. Uh, Sam, who's somewhat of an experienced dancer, is telling Hallie about how ballroom dance is a a form of real art. Yeah. And art creates beauty in the world. And beauty in the world enables us to see a world that achieves something greater than what we currently know. Yeah. And it's a genuine moment when Hallie realizes he's been opened up to an insight he hadn't considered. I think what's so powerful about that moment of insight for Hallie is he has this, uh, like, internal knot of knowing he is supposed to look down on any Black person. Right. And being genuinely touched yeah. by the perceptiveness of this character who has so much more, like, worldliness and insight. Yeah. Um just how do you get into that contradiction? I think that's why I read the New York Times quote is because it seems to get at that kind of multiplicity of right. emotions. It's
1: so, yes, that's very, very well said. Um, I don't think that he would um, view himself as someone that looks down on Sam because he's black. I think he would view himself as someone that thinks that that's the wrong thing. That, that I'm, I'm I'm above that. I, I think, like, I mean, he has a line in the beginning of the play that, um, you know, like... People, like things will change, there will be progress. like he believes that like this is a bad this is a bad thing that we're doing that that, that this you know racism is bad and, and and I'm above that because I'm smart and I and I you know and um, but of course, that's like his like highest level thinking. <laughs> like if you dig beneath that, he is a, a kid who has spent every day of his life, seeing and whether he wants to or not absorbing, um, this attitude toward this, this racist attitude towards black South Africans. And so I I felt like the duplicity was the struggle between what, what he can't escape and what he, uh, thinks that he can escape. And so I, I don't, I don't view him as, as, um, sort of I don't think he's lying when he says that he wishes the world were different. I think he really does. But I also think that he he just has a vocabulary
0: mm-hmm.
1: for racism by virtue of where he lives and what he's seen that is inescapable and 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 just is is in his mind whether he wants it to or not. And and I think that that's, you know, a lot of times like when we talk about racism, we think of people as like you know, being like consciously hateful of people or not. I, I felt like Hallie is like a kid who is trying to be a good person, but has this poison that's been put in him that he can't just break free of. And and it's a weapon that he chooses to wield in the worst possible way at the end of the play. And I just think that that's, I mean, what Athol does so brilliantly in the play is is he shows the ways that that weapon can be wielded and the ways that you can immediately um, regret doing mm-hmm. it. And like, and that both of those- And ext- think that wasn't me. Yeah, that wasn't, that was, uh, no, I was just angry. And it's like, well, okay, but that was in you and you said that. Yeah. And, you know, how do we grapple with the fact that, that both of those things coexist? And so I tried to make it- um, Make the audience understand. I didn't want the audience to leave saying, "Oh, I guess this is a play about like a, a, a young racist kid who was racist the whole time." It's like, mm-hmm. it, it's 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 more complicated than that, and I hope that came across. A lot of that had to do with the brilliance of my uh, the two other actors in the play, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and 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 Ath- but fundamentally Athel's writing and the fact that he was there to sort of guide us through it.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned he gave you a lot of freedom. Yeah. It actually was the second time I think that you have played a younger version of a writer while the writer was in the room watching you play a younger version.
1: Yeah, of him. I think it's actually bizarrely it's the th- third. Cause I, cause Secrets of the Trade again was uh, it was I wasn't playing a character who was named by like after the playwright, but it was basically his life. So it's we it's weird that that would be you know I haven't done. So many plays that you would think I've done that more than once. But yeah, yeah that's a thing. Another
0: resume item.
1: Yeah, exactly. Special skills. <laughs> I remind playwrights of themselves.
0: So yeah. you did Brighton Beach Memoirs, which you alluded to earlier. Yeah. And Neil Simon was, it was when he was living and yeah. it was when he was with you. Um, was it a similar kind of freedom? Did he have specific ideas about either previous productions of the play or um, or memories of himself?
1: It wasn't quite the same thing as Athol, given that Athol was also, you know, directing it, so he was there literally every day. Um, Neil was there a fair amount, though, and I was eighteen when I started rehearsal for that, and I became—I turned nineteen during previews, so I was so sort of naive about the gravity of what was happening that I don't think I sort of understood the um, the stakes of Neil Simon watching me play this character that's based on him in rehearsal every day. So I was able to just kind of go about my business in this way that is, I I so envy now because I would never be that confident uh, at this age. Yeah, I mean, he wrote me this, you know, the it, obviously the play closed uh, very quickly and, um, and he wrote me this note uh, on closing night that I've like framed, made like multiple copies of mm-hmm. and I have it framed in my apartment and... Um, it was a really uh, special thing, and it was my first ever job. So there's just all of this kind of emotional um, baggage attached to it, in in positive ways and and somewhat you know sad ways. And so yeah, it was that's that's something. There's I feel like there's just sort of a, a string from my heart to that play. That's Aww. probably gonna you know be be there for. Was a long he time.
0: shaken up about how quickly it closed?
1: Yeah, I think he was. Yeah. It was a really sad experience for all of us and it had a lot it had to do with a whole lot of factors i think but um but it it was also an experience that i think like made me a much more um, mature person and and a much more kind of self-aware actor in terms of like the actual business of being an actor i think i just had a much healthier set of expectations after that given where I, given how young I was going into it. And I can
0: imagine that the experience for producers or investors who felt disappointed, obviously, by a quick closing, might be lost on an 18-year-old who was like, I just was on Broadway. Yeah.
1: I mean, honestly, yeah, there was a lot, there was a lot of, because I I had done literally nothing. I remember in in the playbill for that production, it it said, it said, my most recent credit was an off, 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 off Broadway production of The Producers at my high school.
0: So did it only propel you forward?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, uh, yeah, I kept I kept acting, and then I went to college, and I... Um,
0: oh, right, you maybe, hadn't even started college. Yeah,
1: that was my gap year before starting uh, at Columbia. And so then I went to school, and I studied philosophy, and I also acted occasionally at the same time, or took time off to do it. and um, So yeah, I mean, it's definitely got the snowball rolling down the hill, even if it was a, you know, a small snowball. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: So uh, maybe lastly, um, you've made your way into podcast work recently. Oh, I just yeah. discovered uh, with a new fiction podcast from Gimlet called The Horror of Dolores oh, Roach. yeah. Uh, with Daphne Rubin Vega and Bobby Cannavale. Yeah. Um, which is c- kind of crazy. It's like a crazy horror story. Sort of a... Sweeney Todd, yeah. like, meets In the Heights. Yeah, that's a good way for it. Meets right? Orange is the New Black. Sure. Sort of meets Chaim Potok.
1: Sure. In your
0: character. Yeah, sure. You eat, like, non-kosher food for the first time. Right. And that's all I'll spoil about this Yeah, that's podcast.
1: already too much. That's- <laughs> There's no point in listening now. <laughs> the whole podcast is about me eating non-kosher food.
0: So is it also in development as a TV show?
1: I've heard that. Oh, uh, from I don't remember who.
0: Oh, I saw it on IMDb.
1: Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's who told me IMDb. Um, I don't know anything about it, other than yeah, I guess I guess it's becoming a TV show. Maybe I, maybe I can get an audition.
0: Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You're like, uh, great. I, thought, I, I don't know how to help you with that. Uh, I
0: thought you'd have more to say about it.
1: Oh no, no. I, I I only know what you know.
0: But even just as a podcast, like, is that similar to doing voiceover work for? An animated film, let's say. It's like oh. you're, you're in for a day.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really quick. Like
0: the easiest kind of acting.
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, it's something I really love. I mean, this is funny because we're on a podcast. Like, I don't know if I have a great voice <laughs> for like... Voice over stuff. That's uh, back
0: to that comment that directors have told you.
1: Yeah, that I have, I guess what I, what I'm, you know, lack vocally I make up for in, in physical. Mm. <laughs> uh, that's, that's how I'll comfort myself. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I would, it's really, it's really fun. And it's very, you know, you can show up in sweatpants and a tank top and just act. Uh, I did play an elf in an, in a Scotch tape commercial. So mm-hmm. that's, that counts for something.
0: Physically or you did the uh, voice? No,
1: vo- vocally. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because I guess when people hear my voice, they think, oh, that sounds like an elf. <laughs> uh, so that is something I would love to continue doing. Um, I hope people let me.
0: You mean elf work?
1: Uh, elf work, yeah. I would okay. love to play an elf at like a San- in like a Santa's Village in a mall or something. Or mm-hmm. if not that, just vocalize it. Yeah. This was all an audition (laughs) to play an elf. This entire podcast was so casting directors would be like, we're looking for an elf. Mm -hmm. Let's listen to this podcast.
0: Here's your reel.
1: Here's my reel. Special skills can play elves.
0: Noah, thank you so much for talking to me. Happy to be
1: here. This was a lot of fun. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Places Everyone on Twitter. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Clockner. See you next time.